and welcome back to the Fascinating Jobs Podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Wilson. On this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Dr. Alex Danis, geneticist and science communicator who you may know from her YouTube channel, her work with Genes in Space, or the Untold series on the Realize YouTube channel. As always, please leave a review wherever you listen if you like this podcast. It helps us to get recognized. With that, let's get into episode number five with Alex. So, hi, Alex. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm super excited to be talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So, how did you discover your passion for genetics originally? Yeah, so I've taken kind of a winding path to get where I am. So, when I was in high school, I really loved all subjects. I loved languages. I loved English. I loved science. Um, And I wasn't really sure what path I wanted to take, but I did know that I really liked science broadly and I really liked biology. So I went to undergrad at Brandeis, which is outside of Boston, and I decided to do a bio major. But also at the same time, Brandeis was just opening up a film major for the first time in something like 30 or 40 years. And I had always had a lot of fun sort of making little videos with my friends in high school. And I, at the time, I thought maybe I wanted to be like a music video director in another life. Like I thought it would be so fun just because it was an opportunity to tell stories in short format. That was the only exposure I really had to, I mean, now I realize there are short films, but I was like, oh, like in a music video, you can tell a story really shortly. So I thought, okay, well, that'd be cool. So I also got a film degree when I was at Brandeis. So I had a bio degree and a film degree. And I knew that eventually I wanted to go to grad school, but I kind of wanted to take some time to explore film a little bit first. And also I was a little burnt out after college. I think I wanted to take some time to just try being an adult and just being a person outside of school for a little bit. So I took a couple years off and I worked at a small film production company, but I was applying to graduate schools and I was trying to figure out what program I wanted to apply to because I I loved biology broadly, but there were so many different subdivisions that I could apply to for grad school. And I really settled on genetics because for me, genetics is a great way of asking a lot of different biological questions. And so I felt like if I got a really good background in genetics, I could ask whatever questions in biology I wanted or many of them just because by genetics, and I'm biased because I'm a geneticist, but I really feel like genetics ties so many different types of biological fields together. So for me, it was like a great question asking field that if I could go into genetics, I could ask all these cool biological questions. So I was applying to grad schools and I applied to, I did apply to some biology programs too, but mostly genetics focused programs. Uh, But I was in sort of the film world and I missed talking about science. So I started a science YouTube channel at the same time. And then I went to grad school for genetics and then sort of kept doing this YouTube channel on the side and was really pursuing my genetics degree and having so much fun in this field because what I naively didn't really realize when I started grad school was that genetics was sort of booming at this point in time. And it really still is right now that we have all these cool new tools and new data sets to be able to ask more questions. So we have things like CRISPR. We have big genetic data sets that are coming from all different areas right now. So it was so much fun. Like I 
did not intend this. It was absolutely not on purpose, but I wound up coming into the genetics world at a really fun time where there was so much to do. And so did that for five years, got my PhD, and then ended up deciding that I didn't have to decide between doing film or doing biology, and that I was going to combine the two forever, uh, and decided to go into science communication through science film. So yeah, that was a long answer to your question about how I found <laughs> genetics. But really, it was it was because I loved a lot of things and genetics felt like a really great way to ask questions about biology. Yeah, and I think that's really cool how you kind of don't need to like necessarily pick one passion. You can kind of combine them into both because as you're talking, I see that in myself, I'm kind of like, well, I really like science, but I also like English, but I kind of like all these other things. So yeah, I think that's like really good advice for students who still can't make up their minds. So um, kind of could you elaborate more on what the PhD process was like? You know, how did you do your research? I'm very interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll back up a little bit that I had some research experience in undergrad. So I worked in an awesome lab that was doing fruit fly genetics. Uh, so I had a little bit of research experience, but I had taken a couple years off. And so I felt a little, it felt like entering a new world when I went to get my PhD. So the first year and a half or so I was taking classes but I was also doing rotations. And so what this was, was I would essentially try out different labs and different projects to see where I felt comfortable and where I felt like I would fit and be able to do a research project for five or six years. So I rotated, the first lab I rotated in was looking at sea anemones, which was very cool um, and a lot of fun. The second lab I rotated in was the lab I ended up going into that was looking at sort of cardiac biology and the heart. Uh, and how we can use genetics to solve or to work on heart disease, not solve heart disease. And then the third lab I was in was looking at neurodegenerative, dis neurodegenerative disorders using yeast, which was also really cool. And so I tried out these three labs my first year. And the one that I really felt I could see myself pursuing a five year long project in, because that is a long time, uh, was the cardiac biology lab. So I studied a disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which means that there's an overgrowth of the left ventricle of the heart, which is the ventricle that pumps blood out to the rest of the body. So the muscle gets too big and it's not as good at pumping blood out anymore. So my project sort of had two prongs. On one hand, I was looking at how we can use genetics to help diagnose people with this disorder, especially when somebody comes in and they have the disease and we're looking for a genetic cause for it. There are some genetic mutations that we know are associated, but there are lots of others that we're not sure. You know, we see a mutation pop up in a gene, but we're not sure if it's associated with the disease. So I worked on ways of trying to figure out, is it or is it not actually associated with the disease? And then on the other hand, I was trying to work on therapeutics that could then go in and say, okay, this is your mutation that's causing the disease. Can we somehow turn down the volume of that mutation? Can we take away some of its effects and try and help you? Uh, and so it was hard. I mean, I, I think one of the things that it was a very translational lab. So rather than doing basic research, which is really just sort of like, oh, we have sort of broad questions about the world and we're just trying to figure out more about how the world works. I was instead trying to take something that then my lab was associated with a, a clinic. So something that, you know, far down the road, they could then actually take two patients. So it was it was hard because it was sort of like there was 
so often in science, there isn't a right answer, right? Like you're just trying to find what the answer is, but there isn't a right answer. But it felt sometimes doing translational research where the right answer was helping people. And so I was trying to like, is this thing that I'm working on going to help people or is it not working? And so that sometimes was a little tough that it felt like my research really had, you know, if it didn't work, I was like, oh, like there are all these people who need help and I'm trying to help them. And like, I'm not helping them right now, but I worked through that. And so in the end I did, the diagnostic part worked a lot better than the therapeutic part, but it was, it was a fun area to play around in again, because genetics, there are so many new tools available to us, things like CRISPR right now. Um, that was just really fun to work in for five years, but also, also hard because there were so many days where it was like, oh, but like if I worked harder or faster, like maybe this would help patients more. Um, but that's, I had to remind myself that I'm just one little part of the jigsaw puzzle. Like there's so many great people all around the world working to try and help patients and make people's lives better that like, we're all just trying to add our one little puzzle piece. Yeah, I think that's really great. And that research sounds super interesting. I think it's like really interesting just to see like how you come up with the types of questions to answer and then and you get to like work on that for a really long time and be like super invested. So I think that's pretty cool. And I think that actually you just hit on what I think was the most valuable part of grad school for me was learning how to ask good questions. Because I think that that I mean, I'm no longer in research now I work in science communication. But I think that that's something that has helped me in all areas of life. And I think is really important for everybody to do is to figure out like, how do you ask a good question? Because no matter what career path you're in, that's gonna be a useful skill to both figure out like, how do you, what is a good question? How do you ask it? And then how do you answer it? I think those are all really important skills that grad school is not the only way to learn those skills, but it was it was a good way for me to be able to sort of learn those skills and hone those skills and really, really work on them for a dedicated period of time. Yeah, again, really great. And yeah, I think like the kind of question and answer thing is like something that we think of when we think of like science, but it could definitely be applied to other career areas. So you've worked on plenty of projects, um, with whether it be with your YouTube channel or you have a series called Untold, which I watched and I thought was pretty great. So Thank you. Yeah, I think it was super interesting. So what was like one of your favorite projects that you've work done with your career? Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of really great projects and to work with a lot of really interesting scientists, but there is one that stands out that I don't know if I will ever top this because it was the greatest day of my life, was back in, I think it was 2017, astronauts sequenced DNA in space for the very first time. And I thought that this was so cool because I worked on DNA sequencing down here on the ground. And the idea that the astronauts were doing this up in space was so cool. And so I reached out to NASA thinking that they would never get back to me and asked if I could interview the astronaut who did the first DNA sequencing in space. And they said, yes. And so I got to go to Houston and I got to meet with astronaut Kate Rubens who is the coolest person that I have ever met. So she is, I mean, she was already a professor. She has a PhD in biology. She is an astronaut, which means she's, you know, fluent in Russian and can fly fighter planes and like is up in space. Like she was so cool. And I got to spend an hour with her 
talking about DNA and we actually got to run a little bit of DNA on a sequencer and just be in the lab with her and hear about her experiences of how just doing little things that I take for granted down here on the ground. So when you move small amounts of liquid in the lab, you use a tool called a pipette. And it's basically like a fancy little like eyedropper, um, but that moves very precise amounts of liquid. And she was saying that, you know, down here on the ground, you just use it and you don't think about it. But because you have to press down up in space, if you did that, you would, the force of you pressing down would actually push you across the International Space Station. So she'd have to like hook her feet under the board in the space station and then pipette. And it was just so cool. Like, I don't think I will ever have a greater day than getting to talk about DNA sequencing with an astronaut. It was so much fun. And so that project, I mean, I, it was ended up being a 10 or 12 minute video that I hope was helpful to people to talk about DNA sequencing. But for me, it was just this amazing day of getting to meet one of my scientific idols. And it was so fabulous. She is the coolest person I've ever met. So that was really fun. That does sound really cool. And like, yeah, I feel like that's one of the interesting things that, about space is just like how different, like how difficult, easy things are for us. Like that's like so yeah. interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't think about like the thing with the pipette and all sorts of different. That's really cool. Yeah, it was great. And I, I will say too that that for me was one of those things where I, I took this crazy chance. I reached out to NASA and I asked them, hi, you don't know me, but can I talk with an astronaut? And amazingly, they said yes, which was wonderful. But it also taking that sort of crazy chance, a company called uh, Mini PCR, which runs a Jeans in Space contest for high school students, reached out to me and then said, hey, we saw this video you did with Kate Rubens. Would you do something similar with us? And I said yes to that. And that really started sort of my freelance career and really gave me sort of this little launching pad that, okay, I could do this professionally and I could do this more and I could do this for clients. And so it was also one of those things where like it holds a special place in my heart because it was the coolest day of my life, but also career-wise, I took this chance and then it led to this greater path. And so I think too, it was really, it's really great for me to look back on because I was like, oh, I'm, I can't, NASA's never going to get back to me, but I'm going to try anyways. And I put myself out there and I went out on this limb and then it led to other great things afterwards too. So that was also, it's another reason why it holds a special place in my heart because now through Genes in Space, I've been so much more involved with the space community and I've learned so much more about the biology that happens in space. So it also sort of opened up this whole new world for me, which was really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I think like, that's just like so nice that, you know, like they responded. And I mean, like, that's definitely something that I like, you know, every time I ask a guest to go on my podcast, I'm like, oh, no, I hope they respond. I hope they but yeah, like, it was so nice. I've been getting to talk to some super cool people, including yourself. And yeah, I think like, just putting yourself out there is the first step. So yeah, kind of Branching off of that, when you um, make videos for clients, do they reach out to you or do you reach out to them or how does that kind of go down? Yeah, it's been, it's sort of a little combination of both, but I've been really very lucky and very grateful so far that I've had this YouTube channel for seven or eight years now where I just sort of put out the things that I want to make and things that are interesting to me. And I've been very lucky that that has sort of acted like a bit of a calling card for me for clients to come and find me. And so most of the jobs that I've had so far have been because somebody has seen the work that I've already done on YouTube and asked if I can do something similar with them. 
So for me, it's a, it started really as just a fun outlet to talk about science with bigger audiences and to try out new projects and to sort of flex my film and SciComm muscles. But it's also really a sort of low stakes way for me to put out there into the world hey, this is what I do, and this is what I like to do, and this is what I can do, and I could do this with you. Um, so I think that's something, too, that I, when I talk with people who are sort of starting out in their career or who are trying to do something similar in SciComm, uh, that's always the advice that I give is just do it. Just do it. Like, put something out there and do it and just start doing it. And both because you're going to get better at it the more that you do whatever that thing is, and also because it lets the world know that this is who you are and this is what you want to do and these are the kinds of things that you want to create. So I've been I've been very lucky that most people have seen the work that I've done previously and come to me through that, which has been great, really great. Yeah, that is nice. And I like that you mentioned that like YouTube is just kind of like a different creative outlet for you to do kind of do make whatever videos that you want to make. So I guess my follow-up question on that would be how do you kind of come up with the ideas for your different YouTube videos? Yeah, so that sort of evolved over the years. When I first started, I, again, because it was sort of trying to figure out this world and what I wanted to do, the first year I was putting out a video every week. And so it was like, okay, what's a cool question that's come up in the news? What's a cool thing that I've heard about? What's this sort of thing? And I was making shorter videos on it. Whereas now I sort of have to be a little more picky with the subjects that I'm talking about because I have a little less time to dedicate to my own YouTube channel because now I'm working for other clients as well. So coming up with ideas is a longer process now where it's like, okay, what's a what's an issue that's come up in my life that I wish somebody had made a video about that I want to, what's something I want to watch and so I'm going to make that. Um, or what's something that has really sparked my curiosity lately and has really made me want to dig deeper into the subject and what are the parts of this subject that I would want somebody to tell me about and that I would want to hear about and that I would want to like consume. I think that's something that I've had to really think about a lot where at the beginning it was just like, well, I'm just going to make content about science and that will be enough. And now I think a lot more about like, no, like what would I, I don't, I don't ever want to waste anybody's time. I always want to be making content that if somebody spends 10 or 15 minutes watching, I feel like I've added some sort of value to their life. And so, and hopefully they've learned something. And maybe that's, maybe all that they've learned is that science is cool and that's okay. But like, I still, I just try and think about like, if I'm gonna take 10 minutes of somebody's day, what is the most impactful thing that I can tell them in those 10 minutes? Or what's the most fun thing I can tell them in those 10 minutes? So I think I really approach it that way now of like, well, if I think this is cool, somebody else out there is going to think it's cool. And how can I deliver the most value in that time for them? Yeah, I think that's like really cool. And that's like an interesting way of thinking about it and like flipping perspective to the viewer, not just necessarily like the content creator. So what was like maybe one challenge of having the YouTube channel or kind of just making STEM films in general that most people wouldn't like realize or think about? Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me is remembering who I'm talking to and trying to remember what my goal is for who I'm talking to, because I feel like for me, sometimes I get really bogged down in all the details and all the minutia of something. And so I'm working on a video right now about uh, cyanotyping, which is this really cool photographic process where you may have done them as a kid called sun prints, where like you have this like blue sheet of paper, you put things on top of it, you leave it in the sun and then it changes color. 
So I wanted to talk about the science of that. And I went down this crazy chemistry rabbit hole of like trying to explain all of the details of this chemical reaction. And I had to step back and realize, I don't think this is interesting. Like, yes, this is the hardcore nuts and bolts science of what is happening here, but it's boring to me. Like, I, this isn't the part of it that I think is cool. And so I had to step back and be like, all right, well, I don't actually think that I'm going to make this video and somebody's going to walk away knowing exactly how the electron transfer happened in this chemical reaction. Like, that's not the important part to me. And it's not the important part to get across to them. Like, I want to talk a bit more about like the history of photography and why there's this chemical reaction and more about like the broad sense of how it's happening rather than all the little details. And so for me, that's the hardest part is trying to figure out what level I want to communicate at because I want to get across cool science concepts, but I don't want to get really bogged down in the details that I don't think anybody's going to take away. And that's really been a learning process for me because again, it's the same thing of like, wait, I don't actually think which electron moves where is all that interesting. Like that's not the cool part of this. The cool part is that you take these two chemicals and they come together and they make Prussian blue, which is this new dye in this pigment. That's the cool part. And so I think really sort of sifting through the balance between getting across accurate and correct science, but also doing it in a way that is interesting and giving you something you can use in your daily life rather than just a list of facts. I think figuring out that balance is is difficult, is actually really hard. Um, and it's something that I still struggle with and I don't always hit the mark on and I'm always trying to get better at. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that I've never thought about before. So yeah, like just kind of making something that's also entertaining because at the end of the day, like, you know, it's maybe like kids or teens who are going to be watching this and they kind of have to stay engaged and yes. you don't want to watch the whole video. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I've definitely had my fair share of boring chemistry videos. And yeah, right. but then like when the ones that I feel like the videos that are so great and entertaining, those are like the best ones. Like they're just so fun to watch. And I just want to watch them again and again and again. Like, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's one of those things where like when you get it right, like it just home run. Exactly. And it's it's so hard to get it right. It's really hard. But yeah, sometimes you see those videos where you're like, oh, I wish I'd made that because that's that perfect balance of the two. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, how would you say like that the common person benefits from like extra STEM and maybe bio and genetics knowledge? I mean, I think we're at, especially in 2020, we are at a point in time where we are all being faced with more and more science in our daily lives that we have to make decisions about and that we have to sort of confront. And so for me, I don't make videos with the idea that everybody is going to come away wanting to be a scientist or the idea that everybody is going to watch my video and then know everything about the topic. But I want to try and equip people with the vocabulary so that they feel comfortable talking about science, even if they don't know all the details or have all the background and that they don't find it to be scary. Because again, I think, you know, right now in 2020, we're in a point where we are hearing conflicting science news coming from every side of us right now and you know masks are good masks are bad you should stay inside you should be outside like there's just so much conflicting information and i don't expect the normal person to be an epidemiologist or to be an immunologist and to be able to go in and dig into the science papers themselves but i want people to be equipped with just knowing like okay what is a virus like what is this thing out there in the world 
What are its parts? Why is washing my hands helpful? Like, I want people to be able to engage. I want people to be able to at least try and think about like, is this source of information coming in good? Is it bad? Is it an expert source? Is it a source that knows what they're talking about? Like, I want people to be able to engage with it at that level. And I think the more that we can get across that science isn't scary, that scientists are real humans, that we are people just like you who are doing the work and we're trying to like get to the bottom of tough questions. Um, I think the more we can just make people comfortable with that, the more equipped they can feel to handle the news and to make decisions about what they're eating and what medicines they're taking and what precautions they're taking right now. So really for me, the more we expose people to STEM, again, I don't expect that everybody's gonna go out and then become a scientist. Like that's not realistic, but I want people to feel comfortable with it and as comfortable with talking about the science and the news as they feel talking about the weather, right? Like I, I want it to be something, you know, if you're able to talk about the news story that happened, you know, a cat ran up a tree last night kind of thing. Like, I, I want you to feel that same level of comfort talking about like, oh, the CDC has changed their guidelines kind of thing. And it's it's hard because I think a lot of us, if you haven't taken a science course since high school, or if you haven't gotten to a level of science in high school that's talking about what is a virus, like, it seems scary. It seems really intimidating just to try and figure out like oh gosh what is dna and what is rna and like we're talking about a lipid membrane what does that even mean and so i just i just want to give people that comfort level that they have talking about the weather talking about what's going on uh, not that anyone's t comfortable talking about politics but yeah. talking about the news the daily news cycle like i want people to be that comfortable talking about science yeah i think that's really cool and i think that you mentioned like in a science classroom and i think that like videos and extra resources kind of maybe go beyond what we'd learn in. I mean, I know in our biology, we learned about what was a virus and then we made little models with the- um, Oh, nice. We made out of like foam balls and stuff like that. So I think just like realizing that science is all around us because I think that STEM is definitely like a very scary field for, I think, cause it's newer to a lot of people, especially yeah. with like technology and there's constantly like new information coming up. And especially with 2020, as you mentioned, the CDC is constantly changing their guidelines lines and so I think part of it is like being able to adapt to change and just like tell people like hey you know like science changes too you know like scientists are human we can just like kind of all get through this together so yeah yeah, yeah I think that's like a really powerful message and I think that's why it's so important that we have people like you who are like you know educating people different people on you know the certain subject in like a fun and entertaining way I hope so. I'm trying to do my little part. <laughs> yeah. I guess kind of going back to mentioning school and stuff like that. So what would be your advice to somebody newly interested in studying biology or genetics? How could they kind of get involved with learning more about the subject? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it depends a little bit on sort of where you want to take it. So if you're, let's say you're a high school student and you're really interested in biology. I mean, I think there are so many great online resources now about, you know, things you can watch and podcasts you can listen to and things you can read. And so I think exposing yourself to as many parts of biology um, as possible is great, especially at that point in time. So for example, I just learned, or I guess in the past couple of years, that astrobiology is a thing. This is the study of like looking for 
both the origins of life on Earth and how that might have come from space or like how that formed on the early planet, and also looking for signatures of life outside of Earth, which until a couple of years ago, I thought was only for like people who believed in aliens. I was like, oh, like that's sort of weird and like that can't be real science. But there is a real discipline of science that is doing true study looking for, you know, looking for life on Mars and on Europa and all these different places that is so cool. It is so fantastically cool. And had I known that that existed when I was in high school, I might have gone in that direction instead. I really might have pursued that, but I didn't even know it existed until I was well into grad school. Um, so I think first thing, just expose yourself to as much science as possible. Like if you think you're into biology, look into every possible field of biology and read as much as you can and listen to as much as you can. And then I think too, like once you have the ability to choose what classes you want to take, be that in high school or in college or continuing education, which is awesome. Again, I think sort of exploring broadly is great. Like take whatever core courses you need to take. But some of the classes that I really loved in college were like an Asian history course, like in an Asian art course, were so much fun, had nothing to do with biology. But I think also just again, opened my eyes up to different things in the world and made me a better scientist because I was better able to interact with the world around me as well. So again, like I, so much in science forces you to become a specialist in one tiny itty bitty area. And that's great. And we need that when we're doing research. But I think we don't put enough, we don't give students enough uh, leeway to explore other things be that within the sciences or with other outside things, because it's so focused on, well, you got to get into the right college and then you got to get into the right research lab and you got to do the next thing. And I think really we lose a little bit of element of that sort of exploration of like, but what else is out there? And I think that is so, so important. So, so that would be one thing is just to like read and explore and take classes super broadly. The other thing is I, when I got to college, I really didn't find my place my first couple years of college. Like I was taking all the required courses and I had my friend group, but like I didn't really find my spot until I joined a research lab. And once I had joined that research lab and I could really get hands on with science, doing actual science research is so different from science classes. Like so many of the science classes I took were like, memorize this thing, write this equation, get this product. Whereas science itself is not about memorizing things. It's about asking questions and then like going on a journey to answer that question. And that once I finally found a research lab, that's where I was like, oh, this is cool. And I like this and like, this is fun and I want to keep doing this. And so I think too, if you're interested in biology, you don't need to rush into it. I think there are a lot of students who like, again, because there's, I think so much more pressure now than there was when I was like applying to colleges and going to grad school and stuff to like get research experience as early as possible. Like don't, you don't need to rush into it, but like when you feel ready to be like, all right, I want to take that next step into like, what is research and how do I do science? Find a lab and see if you can play around with it. And the first lab you join doesn't need to be the only lab you're in forever. Like if you do a summer in one lab and another summer in another lab, just, I think especially at that stage, especially the college stage of just exposing yourself to what research is and what working in a lab is and what types of questions you like asking and what kinds of questions you have fun asking. I think that's a really important thing at that point 
versus like, well, I have to do this research project and publish a paper and get all these things. Like, I hate that we like make people focus so much on that, on the like, well, you have to have something to show for it. Whereas I feel like sort of high school and college is the perfect time to just be like, no, what do I like? Like now is the time to explore and figure out like, do I like working in a lab? What kind of lab do I like working in? Um, Cause some people too, I think don't realize how, especially now, at least in genetics and in biology, you can be a biologist and always be like in the research lab working with yeast and cells and pipettes and liquids or whatever in what we call the wet lab. Or you could be a completely computational biologist and never have to step foot in the lab and just code like amazing things that have helped us figure out new things about the human genome and populations and all this. So I think, yeah, it, it's all going to come back to just exploring and figuring out at this point, like, what is the most fun to you and what would you really, really want to do? Yeah, and I think that you raise a good point where when you're doing research kind of outside of school and stuff like that, it's less about grades and it's more about like what you're interested in and are you having fun? And because I yeah. think that's something that we all get caught up in in high school and college is just like passing the class, doing well in the exam. Yes. So yeah, just kind of like, I think that's good advice to just kind of do something outside of school that, yeah. So um, just kind of like quick question, what was your favorite part about working in the lab versus like just going to class? Oh yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved classes and I've actually been looking into like continuing, edu continuing education classes now just cause like I miss learning in that setting. But I think it was just, I felt like I had so much more uh, control almost in the lab that like it wasn't like somebody had prescribed for me here's what you're going to read and here's what you're going to memorize and here's what you're going to go do instead it was well here are some flies and here's a broad research question and how are you gonna what do you want to explore what do you want to do and how are you going to get there and one of the other things that was fun is I helped my undergrad lab um, develop a uh, new type of test for one of the questions we were working on. And I, we, so what we were doing actually is we were testing uh, fruit flies responses to different tastes, specifically uh, wasabi. And so the idea was that that's sort of a, uh, no susceptive is the word, but it's kind of like a painful stimulus. And so we were taking out genes from the fly with the idea that if you took out a gene that was involved in that taste, the fly would no longer be able to taste it. So they would keep eating this noxious thing that, you know, they shouldn't want to taste. And so one of the ways we did this was called the cafe assay. Uh, and we put two little tiny tubes, one of just sugar water and one of sugar water with uh, the reactive chemical and wasabi into these tubes. And then we saw how much of the liquids these fruit flies drank. And that took it sounds very simple, but it was like, well, you got to get the humidity right and what size tube are you going to use and how are you going to do this? And it almost felt a little bit like a craft project to try and put this together and figure out how it was going to work. And I just loved that. I didn't know what the right answer was. I didn't know what humidity we were going to need. I didn't know what amount of liquid we were going to need. I didn't know all this, but I got to really, truly hands on play around with this and figure out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And that to me was so much more satisfying than just reading a chapter in a book and memorizing it, like actually getting to do the work. And I I also, I just, I like making things with my hands. So that was also really satisfying, but it wasn't theoretical anymore. I was like actually doing the science it was really fun. 
So I, I really like that part of working in a lab. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And yeah, as you mentioned, just kind of like actually getting to like create and design your own like new experiments, because even in labs in school, that's something that we don't necessarily get to do. We're just doing, you know, somebody else's experiment that they right. came up with. But yeah, I think that's like a really valuable part in of doing the lab. So um, I know that this is kind of like a, I think that this will be our final topic of discussion, but I know this is kind of a hot button issue, maybe not in 2020 because of coronavirus, but I think that STEM in general can just be kind of like male dominated. And I know like even in some of my classes, like it's definitely sometimes a boys club. So what's been your experience being kind of like a woman in STEM? Yeah, I've been, I've been very lucky that I've had great female role models in STEM through my whole career. And so I had amazing sort of female science teachers in school. And then when I got to a lab, there were a lot of wonderful women working in the lab. So I feel very lucky that I was always, I was, I could count on one hand the number of times I was made to feel like a woman scientist versus just a scientist, which I'm very grateful for because that isn't the experience for a lot of people. And I think it's, I think it's better in biology than it is in some other fields because biology tends to be about 50-50 in sort of, you know, female to male ratio. Um, but I, I have had some experiences where there were comments made about the fact that I was a woman in STEM or a few uh, experiences where I was the only woman in a room, I was the only woman presenting at a conference. And that, it puts a little extra pressure on you because, you know, when you go to present at a conference, I always felt like I was representing my school and my department and my and my lab and it's also tough if you're the only woman there to be like and I'm also representing all women <laughs> like that's that's yeah. a lot of pressure it's a lot to add on but I at least in biology I feel like it's getting much better um, and I feel like I was lucky enough to be in a scientific generation where I had a lot of amazing female role models in STEM and I hope that I can also be that for the next generation of scientists um, but yeah, so I, I was very lucky in that, that I was always surrounded by great, strong women in STEM. Um, but I think, I think we need to just continue having those role models and being those role models. And I, I hope that in, you know, another gosh, 50 years, it's like not even a question that's asked anymore. Right. Because you think about like, men are never asked like, well, what's it like to be a man in STEM, right? Like, and that's uh, because it's just considered, or it was at one point in time sort of considered the default. And I so hope that in the next, you know, 50 years in my lifetime and in your lifetime, we just see that like everybody in STEM is the default, that it doesn't matter what gender you are or what orientation you are or what race you are. Like, I hope that all of that is just gone. Um, but I, we still have a lot of work to get there, but I am optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think that you definitely raise a good point there where, like, I feel like STEM in particular is just, like, something that's just been so, I feel like, male-dominated. I think, like, definitely in school, like, we see, like, the number of, um, actually, I've had a lot of great, like, female, like, st science teachers and stuff like that, but I think I've only ever had one female math teacher. So I think like we even see this in an education perspective. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that's just, like, a really good point to raise, and I think, like, yeah, I hope, too, that, you know, when I'm in the lab or, you know, in a few years that, like, we can just kind of, like, look past it and, you know, just see, because I think that's something that's, like, necessarily particular to STEM that maybe isn't, like, if you're a book author, then, you know, people aren't thinking, like, oh, well, you know, was it a woman or a man who wrote this book? Like, yeah, so I think you definitely raise a good point there. Yeah, I mean, there's still... There's still a long way to go. And again, I, I'm also speaking from a very privileged position where I am a white woman in STEM. And so I, you know, face so far fewer barriers than, you know, women of color in STEM sort of thing, which I think is still, I mean, just people of color in STEM, I think face a lot of challenges that I have never had to face. And so again, it's totally coming from a position of privilege where I have been very lucky that I haven't had too many bad experiences of people really caring about my my gender uh in stem but yeah i hope again because thinking back like when i was in i don't know when i was in high school and college the only female scientist we learned about was marie curie i'm pretty sure that was the only female scientist that ever came up in school was marie curie every other scientist we heard about was a man but i hope and I, I don't know because I'm not in a high school classroom often but I hope that I mean people like Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier who are discovering things like CRISPR right now are hopefully being brought up and that you know women who are coming up through the education system now are being exposed to the fact that there are amazing female scientists doing work now and that it's not just like and Marie Curie existed one time like back in history like I have to hope too that we as communicators and educators also do a better job of talking about all of the different people in STEM who have contributed and not just the men. Yeah, and I think that that's like a really good point that you raised because as you were mentioning how like the only female scientist we learned about in school is Marie Curie, I was like going through my head and all of the people we'd learned about and I was like, yeah, sounds about right. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I think too, that's a place where hopefully you know, again, I'm not directly in like the education system, but I hope that as a communicator, I can start to expose people to more examples of that, you know, of all the different types of people who are scientists, because it's not just men, it's not just white men, like, there are so many people of every different type you can possibly think of in science. And I think we just haven't highlighted their stories anywhere near as enough and we're still not doing it anywhere near as enough so i i hope that as a communicator i can at least make a difference in that way of highlighting underrepresented minorities and women and you know people of all different backgrounds in science because you know it's it's harder to see yourself in a position if you don't see someone who looks like you in that position and so i hope that at least in that way i can try and highlight those people so that you know young women coming up or people of color who are trying to get into STEM can see that there are those people there who look like them and who act like them and who are them in those careers um, and that they can be in those careers too. Yeah, I think that's like definitely very admirable. And I think that's why it's so important to have people such as science communicators outside of just science teachers, because maybe like what a curriculum in a high school doesn't say, like you can say with a YouTube video or people can kind of get from outside research. So I think that's definitely something that's a big hope for the future is that the outside community can kind of move faster than um, what this in-school communities can. Yeah. 
All right, well, I think that wraps up our discussion for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and joining me. I had a lovely time talking to you. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. A special thanks to Alex for being the guest on today's episode. You can check her out on Twitter at Alex Danis or on YouTube at Alex Danis. She has tons of educational and entertaining videos for you to check out. You can check out this podcast on Instagram at fascinating underscore jobs underscore pod, Twitter at fascinating jobs, or you can check out our website www.fascinatingjobs.xyz. Be sure to rate or review this podcast wherever you listen to let us know you're enjoying it. And if you or someone you know has a fascinating job, email us at fascinatingjobspod.gmail.com for a chance to be a guest on the show. Thank you so much for listening and enjoying this podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.